Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to cover a lot of uh, information, a lot of ground here. <clears throat> I want to talk about, uh, uh, overall, I want to talk about the, the, the limits of knowledge and, and what uh, can be knowable. And uh, where you see this in the Torah and how specifically um, it relates uh, to, the, to the paraduma, the, the uh, whole conundrum, the paradox of the, of the, uh, of the red heifer. Everybody knows the, this is in Parshish Chukas, the, the ashes of the red heifer um, present a, a, uh, a riddle that, that is, is, is famous for, for not being able to be fully understood. And that is the following, that, it, that, the, that the mixture that was made with the ashes from the red heifer and living waters and hyssop and a red string and all put together, that that purified people when they were sprinkled with it from uh, ritual impurity from contact with the dead. And yet, those who prepared it were made impure. So here's the sort of the tension between the two. On the one hand, it was something that, that purified, and yet the making of the thing itself created impurity. So how could that be? How could that be? So, so interestingly, uh, to very simple thought, but it just kind of uh, hit me, was that this is contained in Parshas Chukas. Parshas Chukas begins with the letter Ches. Ches in Gematria is the number 8, which stands for the infinite. So it's, it's um, appropriate that, that that thought, which is very hard to reconcile, very hard to understand, correlates with the number which signifies that which is super-rational, that which is beyond the knowable, if you will. And we're going to get <clears throat> more into this in a, in a bit. I also want to talk about, if we have time, Moshe hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. And, um, and what that means. Uh, uh, everybody knows that when Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to it, he's told that he can't lead the Jewish people into Israel. And so there are enormous world historic consequences to the fact that Moshe doesn't lead us into the land. And for seemingly a very tiny, tiny thing, hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock. So, so what's going on there? And, um, and further, <clears throat> further, before we get into all of this stuff, I, I, I just want to touch on one thing, um, which is, uh, try to explain something. I, I thought of a, a metaphor, which I, I think very um, clearly addresses um, uh, an issue that, that we discussed previously, but I, I just want to bring it up now before we go further, which is the whole question of Korach and Korach's argument, um, his rebellion against Moshe and Hashem, really. Um, and, and he presents an argument which on the surface seems to be very hard to um, solve. Uh, he, he shows uh, Moshe in front of the Jewish people a talus, um, made out of completely all the threads are made out of techelis. Now techelis is is the blue dye that we know that part of the mitzvah of, of tzitzis of, of wearing a talus is that of the strands that hang down one of the threads should be made from this techelis from this blue dye. Okay, we don't have it today, and that in itself is a fascinating topic because some people feel so they have rediscovered it, and, and the truth is is that. According to Jewish law, if you use one of these dyes today, which is um, 
perhaps not the authentic dye, perhaps it is, but even if it isn't the authentic dye, it doesn't uproot the performance of the mitzvah of tzitzis. So in other words, it actually is a win-win. Even if it isn't the actual one, it doesn't invalidate the performance of the mitzvah. And if it is the right one, then you've done something very wonderful and exalted. So that's a, an argument definitely to wear it no matter what. But anyway, that aside, we know just one of the strands of tzitzis is supposed to be uh, with techelis. So, so Korach holds up an entire talus, and he says to Moshe, I have a whole <coughs> talus made out of techelis. Do I still need one thread hanging down if the whole talus is made out of techelis? And Moshe says, yes, you still need the one thread. And Korach says, you know, makes a, a mockery out of, this, out of this judgment from Moshe and says, well, look how ridiculous this is. An entire talus is made out of techelis, and yet it's lacking this one thread, so it's not good enough. And he repeats the argument in another form. He says, I have a whole house full of Torah books, of safer Torahs. Do I, do I need a mezuzah on the doorpost? The whole, the whole house is made out of, basically filled with Torah scrolls. What do I need a few passages on the doorpost for? Okay, so it's a, another variation. And Moshe says, you do need that. And again, he makes a mockery out of the, the, the mitzvot of the Torah. So, so it hit me that, uh, that, that it can be explained in the following way. And I just want to offer this, 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 this metaphor and then um, we'll move on. <laughs> so, so his question is not a question. See, a lot of times, philosophically, we become all tied up in knots over a question that's actually not a question. And we're going to get more into this in a, a little bit later, God way. Questions that aren't questions, but they sound like questions, and they're incredibly confounding. And what Korach does brilliantly with this question about the Techelis, let's concentrate on, on, on that one, um, is he's... He accurately, or rather, he, he, he attempts to portray the Torah mindset, the religious mindset, as very rigid and persnickety and detailed-oriented to the extent that you're detailed-oriented and then you miss the entire picture, the overall picture. Because one thread is not good enough, I've got all of this, right? I mean, that's what people grapple with when they run up against, quote-unquote, the, the religious mindset. Nothing's good enough, or it has to be this weird detail. Why? You know, so, so he tried to use this, this um, predilection that people have had, obviously, for thousands of years to undermine the entire system. But as I said, his question is not a question, and we can understand it in the following way, and then I'll, I'll give the, the, uh, the, 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 the mushal, um, which is, which is that the mitzvah itself is that on a garment that has four corners, a four-cornered garment requires tzitzis. It doesn't matter what the garment is made out of. In other words, like we were saying last week, the garment could be made out of saran wrap or plutonium. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it's made out of. It's irrelevant what the garment is made out of. The mitzvah itself concerns the fact of how you put the tzitzis on a four-cornered garment and what the tzitzis should look like. 
So do you see how it's completely irrelevant? So yes, the tzitzis needs a blue thread. And it doesn't matter what the garment looks like, because the tzitzis go on a four-cornered garment, and this is what tzitzis look like. So the tzitzis can be completely made out of tachelis, or marshmallow, or stretched sour belts, if you know what those are. Um, anyway, here's the mushroom. Imagine, imagine someone comes up to you and says, um, uh, I have a, uh, a closet full of band-aids. Right? Do I need one more band-aid to cover? Do I need to put a band-aid on the wound that I have? Do I need to put a band-aid on the wound that I have? Because I have a closet full of band-aids. And you say, well, yeah, you do need a band-aid to put on your wound. And there's like, ha, huh, how ridiculous. Why should I need a band-aid on my wound when I've got a closet full of band-aids? You see, do, do, do you understand the ridiculous of this thing? You know, so, yeah, you know what, you can have n- no band-aids in your closet. All you need is one band-aid for your wound. Because that's where the need is. By saying that you have like this huge repository of band-aids in the closet, congratulations, I'm I'm very happy for you. But that that has nothing to do with the fact that the band-aid should go on the wound. So so he has a whole talus made out of techelis. It's very wonderful, but it has nothing to do with what the actual mitzvah is. To actually have a a thread on the tzitzit itself. That's where it's needed. That's the only place that it's needed. Okay. Hopefully that clarifies it on some level. But we're beginning to get into, um, we're beginning to get into the topic itself that I wanted to address, which is, which is the notion of what is knowable and what, what, what can be knowable. And and we've got another example of this, where the question itself is really not a question. And it's a very famous um, theological riddle that, that's been around for hundreds or thousands of years, which is the following. Can, if God is almighty, if God is all-powerful, can, can he create a stone that's so heavy that he can't lift it? So, now, let's, let's just reason this through for a moment. If he is all-powerful, he should be able to create a stone that's so big that he can't be able to lift it. But wait a second, if he can't lift it, then he's not all-powerful. And if you say, wait a second, if God is almighty, he can't create a stone that's so big that he can't lift it. Then you say, well, then he's not almighty because he can't create a stone too heavy for him to lift. So, either way, the... This has been ingeniously formulated in such a way that there is no right answer. That whatever side you pick, you've picked the wrong answer. You pick the answer that undermines the, the omnipotence of God. Um, Rabbi Korupkin was discussing this in a, in a lecture series that he gave on the Ishvitzer Rebbe, which was wonderful. And so I'm drawing from his talk now. And, and basically, what he said very astutely, is that the question itself is not a question. In other words, what what is the answer to this question? The question is that the question itself is not a question. 
because it's been phrased according to the boundaries and the parameters of human logic. And God transcends human logic. And he brings the Ishvitzer Rebbe, um, his pshat, his explanation of a very, perhaps many people will, will call it the most mysterious passage in the entire Torah. And the Ishvitzer Rebbe's explanation of it, which I loved, which I, I just thought was just fantastic. <clears throat> and it concerns the second day of creation. The second day of creation is the day when Hashem separated the upper waters from the lower waters. And he put the firmament in between. Firmament in Hebrew is rakia, which can be translated as sky, if you will. So what is this talking about? I mean, this is incredibly profound, right? I mean, this is the beginning of creation, basically, or actually, technically, the second day of creation. But God is separating the upper waters from the lower waters and putting the firmament, the rakia, in between. What is that talking about? Okay? So this is really the... The area of the, 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 deepest, the deepest questions of, of uh, exploration about the universe and about the origin in the, of the universe and, 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 uh, and its structure. The Ishmael Rebbe says the following, that, that there is a realm which is beyond the human ability to comprehend. That, that's, that is the area above the firmament. That is the upper waters. You see, he goes on to say that logic itself, human logic itself, and our notions of reality, what we consider to be reality itself, is an invention of God. You see, we're hardwired to think certain ways and to function within certain parameters. But God himself created that mindset. And we call it reality. But reality, quote-unquote, is a creation of God. God exists beyond that. <clears throat> so, so, you know, I just as an aside, I... I, I've, I've thought from time to time about this. This is a, a, a small example of this, which is, um, you know, people say, you know, love is so fickle. You know, like I'm a man, so I'll talk from the man point of view. So some guys like blondes, other men like brunettes, some men like redheads. You know, it's a wide spectrum. Some men like tall women, some men like tall, uh, short women, some, some like women from other countries. You know, it, it seems like, wow, it's a vast spectrum, this, this power of attraction, right? And yet, if you think about it, if you think about the spectrum of things to fall in love with romantically, it's the tiniest, tiniest bandwidth within the spectrum. Why don't I fall in love with the sidewalk on Doheny Pico, right? Or the pencil that's in aisle five of Target. Or, you know, or the light bulb that's hanging in the McDonald's. Like, why, if you, if you really want to talk about the fickleness of love and attraction, I mean, it seems to be like, if you think of all the things that you could actually fall in love with or be drawn to, you know, then you think, oh, it's just women? 
you know, to, to use one example, right? So, so, so you realize, well, wait a second, we're hardwired. We're hardwired, and we accept that as this, you know, this massive bandwidth, you know, this massive range of choices that we have, that we have really billions of choices of who we could fall in love with. But don't you realize that there are trillions and trillions, and if I had a better vocabulary, I could tell you a larger number than, than, than trillions, you know, you know, things to actually be drawn to? And the fact is that we aren't? Then you go, well, well, well why aren't we? Because we've been programmed in a certain way. We've been hardwired. Our notion of reality has been structured in a certain way. But that's a creation of God. That's an invention of God. Logic itself is an invention of God. So God operates, God dwells above the firmament. There's a pasuk in the Torah that says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Our, our um, inclination is to anthropomorphize God. To make God a bigger, better, more powerful version of ourselves. And God, to a certain extent, even um, aids and abets that type of reasoning because God himself anthropomorphizes his own expressions of interactions with us in the Torah. The, the, the right arm of God, the finger of God, the eyes of God. God himself uses this language. But God doesn't have a, a body. And the rabbis discuss this. It's only God gives us this type of language so that we can better relate to, to, to what's going on. Right? But God's beyond that. Beyond all that. So, so with this in mind, <clears throat> with this in mind, I just want to approach um, something that the Balaturim brings uh, at the beginning of Parshas Chukas. He references um, a medrash, <clears throat> which says the following, that the Torah was only given to those, to the generation that ate manna. Manna was, that's the English word, that's, that's the bread that fell from the sky, or man. That's, that's the bread that fell from the sky. <clears throat> so, so why is that? What do, why is the Balaturim um, bringing this? Why is the tar- Balaturim bringing this medrash at the beginning of Parshish Chukas um, at the time of the greatest riddle, the greatest paradox in the Torah, he's referencing the fact that the Torah was only given to the generation that ate manna. So, so I, I'd like to just kind of go over the, the basic pshat, the, the simple explanation, and then maybe go uh, a little bit deeper, perhaps. So, the simple explanation is the following, that the generation that received the Torah didn't have to earn a livelihood. And so they had their food rained down for them. And so they could spend all their time studying Torah. And so as such, they could delve more deeply into the mysteries of the Torah. Okay. That's, that's, it's hard to argue with that. That's, that's, a, great, that's a great explanation of that, of that medrash. But I want to go a little bit further. 
You could also say, again, maybe on a, a, a simple level, but, but maybe a little bit more profound, that, that, that man itself was so pure. Remember, man was completely absorbed within the body of people who ate it. They, they didn't have to go to the bathroom. It was 100% absorbed because it was, it was utterly pure. There was no, um, there was no uh, waste products within it, nothing impure within it. So it was completely absorbed by humans. So you could say that it was so pure that it enlightened us. And because it enlightened us, we were able to get a better understanding of what the Torah was. Okay, I think that's probably also true. So now I want to kind of take that thought one, 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 one big step further. Go into a little more detail with it. This is something that hit me. I noticed a detail so a few weeks ago, and I was sort of like really kind of shocked by it. Um, when, when, when we get the man, uh, the Torah describes it as being uh, the, like bedolach. That's a Hebrew word that the Torah uses. And bedolach, it's like, what is that? So Rashi says that bedolach is like a, like, it's like crystal. So it's a description of what man was. It's like crystal. That's its appearance. Okay? Very good. So now, I learned from Reb Shlomo, in the name of um, Reb Tzadok HaKon, that if you want to uh, really delve into uh, a particular word, really understand a word in Torah, that go to the first place that it's mentioned in the Torah, and that's sort of the headquarters for the meaning of that word. So when you see it in that context, you can get a, a fuller understanding of what that word means. So I remember that bedolach, because it's such a kind of an odd word, it just hit me. Well, wait a second, I've seen that word before. And it's mentioned in the following context. It's mentioned in the beginning of creation. And it says that, um, that a stream went out of the Garden of Eden, and it separated into four river heads. And it describes the first of the river heads, and it says that that was the place of gold and bedolach. And, and then I remembered <coughs> a commentary, <coughs> excuse me, a commentary that I had seen from the Lubavitcher Rebbe <coughs> about this stream that leaves the Garden of Eden and, 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 and separates into four streams. And he says, <clears throat> the Lubavitcher Rebbe says very, very profoundly that Gan Eden, that Gan is basically the Torah. And the Gematria of Gan is 53. And there are 54 Parshas in the Torah. But oftentimes, two of the Parshas are read the same week. So that makes it 53. So there's a correlation between Gan and the Torah itself. And that this idea of Gan Eden, this sort of upper Garden of Eden, which is sort of a, an area in the, in the cosmos, in, in, in the sort of the upper, upper reaches of heaven, that its, its spiritual influence, its, its um, shefa, pours down and separates into four streams. Kabbalistically speaking, that's the four worlds. The four worlds. See, there, there are different um, paradigms to understanding uh, how God structured the universe. One of them is understanding the, 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 the cosmos as, as, as being segmented into four worlds. And the topmost world is the realm of what's called Atsilus, 
It's the highest, highest emanations of light. So now, let's revisit this whole idea of man and the, the generation that was given the Torah were the eaters of man. Okay? So, so man is likened to bedolach. Bedolach comes from the first stream, the first of the four streams that left the Garden of Eden, which we said correlates with the realm of Atsilus, the highest reaches of heaven. Now, now there's one more, one more idea, and then you'll see how it comes together. In Gomorrah Yuma, Rabbi Akiva says that what was man? Man was condensed light. That's what man was. That, that it was the food of angels, if you will. And that, and that God sort of compressed this light into a, a pellet of light, if you will. It's, those are my words. I think there's probably a better word than pellet. <laughs> that gets me to parrots and cages. But anyway, <laughs> that aside, <clears throat> it, it became a, a hardened drop of light. I like that better. Although it gets me a little bit to cough drops. But anyway, <laughs> but it was, it was this hardened drop of light. And from what realm? From Atsilus from the highest realm. So basically, the Torah was given to those who were feeding themselves and ingesting the light of Atsilus. Right? Now that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now why is... Now I want to take this further. Just to speculate a little bit more on this. So why is the Balaturim bringing this idea by Parshas Chukas? Because, remember, the Ishbitzer says that you have this firmament separating God who exists in this unknowable place, in this place that's beyond us. And then beneath the firmament, we have this, this creation of reality and human logic, right? And now he's bringing, he's bringing this medrash to explain this riddle, which can't be solved by the human mind. So in other words, part of wisdom I'd like to suggest is what can be known and what can't be known. I think that there have been those who feel as though if we're smart enough, we could know everything. That the human mind is, is such that if we thought clearly enough, that the totality could be grasped. But that's actually not the Jewish point of view. The Jewish point of view is that our minds were created by God. So how can we outthink God? Just like an ant can outthink a man, how can man outthink God? If our brains were our creation of God, if reality is a creation of God, how can we tell God what's possible and what's true and what's not true? So the Jewish point of view is that to acknowledge the unknowable is not surrender, but it's wisdom. 
So I think that on some level, perhaps, what's going on is that the Balaturim is sort of giving us a hint. He's saying, you, you Jewish people, who ate man in the desert, who ingested light from the realm of Atsilus, are capable of knowing phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal things. The whole structure of the universe. But, you're also wise enough to understand that there's a rakia, there's a firmament. There's a realm beyond that which can be understood, and that's part of your wisdom. But God in His chesed, in His kindness, reached out and gave us halachas, He gave us the Torah, He gave us the path to guide ourselves within this world. That's also a gift. Yeah? Can you elaborate a little bit more on uh, the the difference there in the surrender and wisdom theory you just mentioned? Yeah. So, so imagine like a kid who gets a, a, a homework assignment that he that he possibly, if he applied himself, could actually do, but it's going to take some work. And he looks at it, and he goes, ah, I can't do this. So, so that, that's, that's called giving up. Because the reality is, is that if that student applied himself, he would be able to, to do well. He would be able to actually, you know, complete the assignment. But he'd have to roll up his sleeves and really work at it. Right? But then... But then there's a realm which is something which is actually unknowable. You see, Hashem says to Moshe, no one can see my face and live. Meaning to say that, that, that ultimately only God is God. And if someone understood all of godliness, the entirety of godliness, then they would also be God. Right? If we're a creation of God, then we're a subset so that just by virtue of that, we can't be a subset and the totality simultaneously. Now, God structured us in this amazing way where God actually put a piece of himself in each of us. That's called our souls. So we're actually, we actually are a subset of God and part of the totality of God, but we're not God. Only God is God. And there is a wisdom to recognizing the limitations of what we're actually capable of. That's actually at a certain point, if it's done in the proper way, not called giving up, recognizing our ultimate limitations. That's not called giving up, but that's actually called wisdom. So, and it's also called humility. It's also called, I think, intellectual honesty. And I like using the word intellectual in that phrase, intellectual honesty, because I think recognizing our limitations is actually an act of applied wisdom, as opposed to saying, well, you know. Because I think, you see, you know, it's interesting. Pharaoh was a really smart guy. He was like, like a super genius, but like a super kind of evil genius, you know? I mean, if you think of the civilizations that they built, they were phenomenal. We're still talking about them, you know? And a lot of the trophies of that civilization are still around and still glue us because they're so fascinating. And so, so one of the first things that he says when Moshe comes and says, you know, let the Jews go, one of the first things that Pharaoh says is, 
who is this God that I should listen to him? I don't know who Hashem is. And so it struck me that you can be really, really smart. You can know a lot of things. But if you don't know one thing, then ultimately it's, you can, it's like you know nothing. See, we say in the Torah, Reishis Hachma Yiras Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the awe recognition, the, the lofty recognition of, of the reality of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. In other words, everything flows from that. And if one denies that one thing, or refuses to recognize that one thing, then, then they might be in a sea of information. But they're not in a sea of wisdom. Because they've removed the foundation of all of existence. So, so hopefully that clarifies it. The notion that, 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 that recognizing that there's, a, there's a, a level of the totality of everything. That's that area that the Ishmael refers to as above the Rakia. Which is understanding that it exists even if we don't know what it is. Is part of our applied intelligence. But it also necessitates an act of humility because we understand that at a certain point our minds can't go further. Yeah? So do you think that, uh, that Pharaoh, as, as an example, continuing that example, he, he didn't have a connection with Hashem. Uh, he had to surrender. He didn't know how to surrender his will to, to, to God. So he, he thought he was running the show and ultimately that, that caused his failure. Yeah, I would agree with that. See, but it's... It's, it's really weird because, you know, in Torah, as I understand it, if someone does a, a good deed and then someone does something which is against the Torah, there are people who think that, well, the bad thing wiped out the good thing. But I, as far as I understand, that's not the Torah approach at all. That that person has one good thing accomplished and one thing that they have to rectify. In other words, one doesn't wipe out the other. So, interestingly, uh, the Gemara talks about it, the Rambam talks about it, that one of the reasons why God gave us 613 mitzvot is so that no one can go through life without doing something right. <laughs> Believe it or not, it sounds almost funny. But one of the reasons why we have so many mitzvahs is that you should... It should be impossible for you to get through life without doing something right. Right? It sounds funny, right? But, but that, is, that is part of it. In other, words, in other words, I don't want to say that Pharaoh never did anything right. He may have. There, there may be instances of it. I don't know. He did a lot wrong, that much we know. But, but what I'm trying to say is, is that is that even as people sort of like stumble along a path, it's, 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 it's not fair, and I think it's, it's uh, incorrect, to invalidate the good that they're doing. That exists as an independent thing. And with that in mind, I want to touch on uh, an explanation. You know, it's funny because we say there aren't explanations, and then we give explanations. So, I want to give something that I came up with one time, and I actually shared it with Reb Shlomo during his lifetime, and he said that he liked it. 
that I came up with to try to explain um, this riddle of the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer. So again, what's the, what's the, what's the paradox? That those who prepare the, the, this um, purifying solution become impure. And yet, and yet this thing, which makes some people impure, makes, makes other people pure. By the way, let me correct a common misunderstanding. A lot of people thought that the one who sprinkled the water became impure. He didn't become impure. It was just the people up until that stage who had prepared the, the, uh, the ashes of the red heifer. Those people became impure. So that's just, a, just something to keep in the back of your mind. So I'd like to explain it in the following way. Yeah? I don't understand the paradox yet. Okay. Right. So, so I don't know that I can... I, I hear what you're saying, and it makes a lot of sense. And when you put it that way, it's just more of an irony than a paradox. You know, when, when you express it in that way. And I, and I totally hear that. But I guess the question is, and now, now we just have to sort of like cede ourselves to the, the das, the understanding of earlier generations who, who did find it perplexing and trust that it is perplexing, that how could it be... It is, but that, that it is offered as the paradigm of the ultimate paradox in Torah. Okay. It is offered as that. So that's, that's how it's classically viewed. So how could it be that that which purifies someone else makes someone else impure? That, that's it in, in a nutshell. And, and I guess that point was... Totally confounding. Um, so, so I'd like to suggest the one explanation, you know, just uh, from my own from my own life, actually, which is all of us are the sum total of all of our experiences leading up to this moment. I think we would all agree on that. We're all the sum total of everything that we've experienced up until now. That's who we are. Now, now, in terms of the road to Tahara, the road to purification, as the Torah understands it, there are, you know, we're living, and I'm in this group, we're living in a generation um, of Balei Tshuva, of people who grew up outside of Torah and have come to Torah. And everyone's got a different story how they arrived at the truth of Torah. And everyone's got a different windy path. What, what took them to this place of realization? And a lot of people, their path includes things that in retrospect were against the Torah. In other words, I did this thing which was, you know... Not the Torah's not keen on, <laughs> and you know that hamburger that I ate on Yom Kippur, whatever it is, was part of my path toward leading up to a place of never eating on Yom Kippur. 
so, so for me, that was part, that, that, that impurity, if you will, was part of my road toward purification. And yet, for someone else, if they're eating a hamburger on Yom Kippur, that's not furthering their spiritual process at all. For them, it's just impurity. It's not a purification. So we have to be very sensitive with each other and all of our journeys. Because sometimes, you know, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says, every step a Jew takes, he's walking toward Israel. Even if he's walking in the opposite direction, he's walking toward Israel. So with, with some of us, we do something that's wrong, according to the Torah, and yet that's actually in a strange way, furthering our understanding of what the right path ultimately is. But for others, that same step would just be a further distancing. Isn't a step toward purification. So, so it's, a, it's a very, very interesting process. It's a very, very interesting process. And it, 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 it correlates with something that the Gomorrah says, which is that if someone, you know, reaches this place of serving God and doing, doing the mitzvahs of the Torah, that they turn all of their averas, all of their mistakes, into mitzvahs. Why? Because all of those impurities, in retrospect, brought them to a place of purity. Because it was all part of their journey. So in retrospect, they become all lifted up and they become mitzvahs. Now at the time, they weren't mitzvahs. They were the opposite. But if it brings you further and closer to the place where now you're, you're living a Torah life to the best that you can, then in retrospect, it was actually a necessary step toward this good place. Now, there are two levels of this, by the way. If someone reaches a place of serving God, ultimately, but from a place of um, only yira, which is basically interpreted in this context of fear of punishment, then in retrospect, those mistakes that they made, they're not turned into mitzvahs. They're just turned into um, careless errors, unintentional mistakes. Um... We talk about doing a mitzvah b'shogeg. So that's, it, becomes, it becomes on that level, which is a very sort of, um, you know, it becomes more like a, like a, a, a minor infraction, just an accidental infraction, really. So the severity of it is really lessened. But if someone comes to a place of service out of love and is now in a love relationship with God, then those same averos, those same mistakes that they made, are actually turned into merits. Not just accidental happenings, but actual merits. So, there's something that I've been, uh, that I've been looking into, and um, changing the topic slightly, but, but it's all one, that, that, that really just fascinates me. And that's this, um, that's this notion of human evolution and where we're heading 
And this idea of our hearts being circumcised. So the Prophet Yecheskel, the Nabi Yecheskel, says that, and this is men and women, that in the end of days, that God is going to remove the orla from our heart, that we've got like a flap of skin on our heart, that's blocking perception, blocking closeness, is another way of understanding it is, it's the division between the mind and the heart. That blockage which is stopping the mind and the heart from working uh, in perfect sync together. That that flap of skin, that barrier, is going to be removed. Um, and I was reminded of this because of this incident of Moshe hitting the rock in the, in the Torah, in Chukas. So just to give you a, um, a perspective for a moment, in, in Exodus and Shmos, Hashem says to Moshe, hit the rock and water is going to come out of it. And so Moshe hits the rock and water comes out. Forty years later, Hashem says, pick up your staff, take it in your hand, and speak to the rock. And Moshe hits the rock two times, doesn't speak to it. And there was supposed to be, and as a result, Moshe and Aaron are told that they're not going into the land of Israel. Which means that they're going to die. And God says that, there was, that, that because you didn't sanctify my name in front of the people, so, so there was going to be an awesome recognition of godliness, that, that had Moshe spoken to the rock, people were going to be able to say, it would be like in our bones this knowledge, in a way that it isn't. Even a rock follows the will of God. Is it possible that I don't follow the will of God? Even a rock follows the will of God. You see, today we look at a rock and we just say a rock doesn't follow the will of God. A rock is a rock and a rock just sits there. But everything is, is being informed and sustained through the word of God on an ongoing basis. Is it possible to say that a rock isn't following the, world, the word of God? Everything is following the word of God on some level, especially a rock since it doesn't have free will. So it's in perfect consonance, meaning to say it can't rebel against the word of God. A rock is in perfect consonance with the Word of God. Can you imagine? We could have had this been done properly in the way that God saw it. In our bones, we would have understood that everything around us is not just an inanimate object which is just positioned there and just exists, but that we're completely surrounded by servants of God who are perfectly obeying the Word of God. Imagine that level of recognition, right? It's awesome. So, so Moshe deviated from this. And so this, this incredible Kiddush Hashem wasn't lodged into our bones in the way God wanted it to be. Now I want to suggest that this level of recognition is consonant with an open heart, with a circumcised heart. And I'd like to suggest the following way of, 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 of showing how that is. You see, the prophet Yecheskel talks about in that same passage, that God is going to take our heart of stone, our rock-like heart, and turn it into a lay basar, into a heart of flesh. So we started off with this, with this rock-like heart that had to be hit. But 40 years later, one of the great commentators, I've forgotten who says that what happened was, 40 years later, we had mis- spiritually matured, 
and it wasn't appropriate to hit the rock anymore. Now you speak to the rock. You know, a, a little kid, sometimes if he's doing something dangerous, he's going to run into traffic. It might be very appropriate to give him a potch. So that he, he goes, oh, ah, you know, I, that, that's a bad thing. I'm not supposed to do that. But do you spank a 20-year-old? I mean, the, people reach a certain more sophisticated level where that's no longer an appropriate way of communicating. So, so to hit the rock 40 years later, after the Torah has been given at Mount Sinai, wasn't appropriate. So I want to say that this was like the level of the open heart at this point. And then at that point, there was just such a level of miscommunication, such a disconnect, such a disconnect. So, so, so I've studied the level I mean, I've studied uh, in, in, uh, in the Shulchan Aruch um, as part of just the laws of Kashrus, um, eating heart meat, oddly enough. You know, it's a part of an animal and how do you prepare a heart to be eaten? You know, this is, some, some people eat it. Interestingly, the Ashkenazim have a uh, tradition not to eat the heart of animals, whereas the Sephardim do. And if the animal itself is kosher, there's no problem with eating the heart. It's just another piece of meat. But some of the commentators, interesting, address the idea of what do you do with this flap of skin on the heart. It actually exists. It actually, this orla actually exists. And so there's a, there's a shita, there's a, you know, a, a, a line of thought that says that even among those who eat heart meat should not eat the orla, this flap of skin on the heart, because it correlates with levels of spiritual blockage, and so you shouldn't ingest that. And interesting. So in other words, these are not metaphoric things. You know, halakha maisa, in, in you know, the nitty-gritty sort of way that we live our lives, this is a reality, this idea of this flap of skin on the heart. And so... What's the next Pasuk? Because that's really what I'm, I'm getting to. You see, I, I guess we had this, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, this ingrained sense of selfishness that, that when we get something, you know, again, I'll speak for myself, when I get something, I, my first instinct is, uh, you know, oh, it's mine. It's mine. But God's much deeper than that. So what does it say? It says, God is going to remove this orla from your heart, this flap of skin from your heart, this blockage from your heart. And the next passage goes on to say, so that you'll be able to serve him perfectly. In other words, the whole point of this next stage of evolution is to more perfectly be in sync with our Creator. That that's the point. That's the whole point. See, I think that it, it, there's a parallel in terms of God taking us out of Egypt. We think God took us out of Egypt. We were slaves. Now we're free. I'm free. I can do anything that I want. And yet, what's the reality? God says it very clearly. I took you out of Egypt 
in order to give you the Torah at Mount Sinai. So what? So that you can more perfectly be in sync with me. So that you can be more perfectly in harmony with the universe. That's the point. Not now free. I mean, but that is the ultimate level of freedom, actually. Because you're no longer being misled and being pulled and brought off the course by a force that's ultimately antithetical to Hashem's will. So that is the deepest form of freedom. And that's, that is our ultimate destiny. That we'll be in perfect sync and in perfect harmony with Hashem. That is the ultimate blessing. That is the ultimate path that humanity is heading toward. And so just to wrap it up, just to understand that until we get to that place, part of the way that we can arrive at it is to recognize that there's this level above the firmament as the Ishpitzer understands it. To understand to a certain extent that we live in a realm where logic and reality itself is a creation of God. And that God is not subject to its parameters. And that God in His chesed, in His mercy, in His divine embrace of us, because the mitzvahs are called divine kisses. God kissed us with the mitzvahs of the Torah. In other words, God communicated His will from above the firmament to us. And that's what the Torah is. And that's our heritage. And Hashem should bless us that we should that we should perform the mitzvahs. And what does that mean to perform the mitzvahs? That means to kiss him back. Okay. Have a great week.